And if you're saying, would you just pray with me? Father, I pray this morning as we continue through this uh, book of Revelation, while on one hand it's hard, on the other hand it's quite simple, I pray that you would um, open our eyes to see the gospel in it, uh, whether we're people who don't trust Jesus yet, or especially maybe those who do trust Jesus, that you give us a different, a fresh vision of who he is and what he has done for us this morning. I pray for myself, that you be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, we're out of Revelation 18. I'm happy to be through, to be honest with you. If you're visiting, we've been going through the book of Revelation, and what 18 sort of felt like for me as a preacher is, you know, if you've ever seen like pictures of ranger school where there's a a mud pit that's covered with barbed wire that you have to crawl underneath to get through, that's what I felt like, sort of. And now I'm out. Still muddy and still have some difficulty ahead as far as like just how, what does everything mean. On the other hand, um, it, it should be a, a bit more refreshing, I hope, from this point on, because now we're heading in to sort of the good stuff. Like Jesus is winning and, and how he will win in the future. And, you know, last week I got some constructive criticism. Not everyone was familiar with the Lord of the Rings. Of course, that shocked me and my family. Um, and, and as I closed with Tree Beard and the story of the ants, and so I figured I would actually take things down a notch today, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we need to talk about the beginning here, Family Feud. Are you familiar with Family Feud, the game show? Remember, if you're my age or, or older, you probably remember Richard Dawson was the host, and now Steve Harvey is the, the host. And remember, Family Feud was all about families. Basically, they weren't, they weren't feuding each other over... Um, facts. They were feuding each other over what they thought people would say about certain things. In other words, remember usually the, the fathers would face off and they'd each have a button and he would ask a question and the answer, the best answer, was what they thought the most people said about a particular subject, not what the correct answer necessarily was. And so I read this, a, a thing this week that caught my interest. It was a show that happened this year uh, in 2012 and the question they asked was this, when someone mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring? In other words, who is the king? What would people say to that? And immediately, I thought, I know what people would say. What mo- in other words, you win by guessing who said, it, who said the most. And I thought in my head, I know what I should say, but I know the right answer. Who would set, who, the, the, the most popular answer is probably not what you should say. Let me, make it, let me go here. You're wondering exactly what, who, what the answer is, aren't you? You see, if you feel the tension right now, that's the same tension Christians in ancient Rome had. You see, because they might go to, to, the, to their carpenter's guild or they might go to a big fancy dinner and people would say to them, who is Lord? Who is the king? And on one hand, they knew what they should say to the person. On the other hand, they knew what the right answer was. And so the question is, do I say the right answer or do I say what people want to hear? Well, at Family Feud, the four top answers, 81 people, when asked, who is the king, said Elvis Presley. <laughs> That's what I thought they would say. Seven people said God or Jesus. Three people said Martin Luther King. Two people said the Burger King. <laughs> and that doesn't equal 100. They only give me the top four. 
But the point is just this, is if you would have said God or Jesus, that would have been the right answer, but it wouldn't have been the answer that was popular. And it wouldn't have been the answer that won you anything. And it's the same in the ancient Rome. That if you, you could say Jesus is Lord, and that's the right answer, but that doesn't mean you would necessarily get rewarded for that. In fact, you might get punished for that. And that's one reason the whole book of Revelation was written to encourage people that even though people expect you to say Caesar is Lord or something else is Lord, that give them the right answer and I will take care of you, I promise. Give them, tell them that Jesus is Lord to all the seven churches. The seven churches, the biggest issue that all of them had was that they were inwardly faced. Two of them were trying to be outwardly faced. But five of the seven churches, all they cared about at some level was what was going on inside their building. And God is saying, go out. Tell people about Jesus. Tell them who is really Lord and I will take care of you. And so as we get into chapter 19, there's a sense in which you, you almost... By this time, I hope you see that the book of Revelation is cyclical because there's a point in which the, chapter 19 could be the end of the book of Revelation as well. It's not, but it could be. Before we go to the end, because in the next couple weeks, we're going to actually hit some stuff that's a little bit controversial. <laughs> People are like, yeah, what about the last year? Um, but either way, at least for me, the only things that are relatively controversial are coming up. And so I want to remind you of the approach that we take here. When I say approach, I mean like what glasses are, are we wearing, or at least am I wearing as I'm talking about the book of Revelation. Remember there are four common approaches. The first approach that we talked about was the, called the preterist approach. And what the, when the preterist reads the book of Revelation, the preterist basically says that everything that's happened in the book of Revelation is in the past tense. Even things that look like they're in the future, they really have already happened and it's just symbolic. So the preterist says everything in Revelation is, has already happened. And that's different than the futurist, because the futurist says everything in the book of Revelation, at least after chapter 3, is yet to happen. So you have one camp that says it's completely past tense, and one camp that says it's completely future tense. And you know which one is right? Well, both of them, sort of. Just like both of them are wrong. You see, if you've noticed, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, there's some things that are past tense, there's some things that are probably future tense. What we probably wouldn't embrace too much is a historicist approach. Remember, the, the, if preterist says everything is past and the futurist says everything is future, the, the historicist says that everything is happening right now. And so you read the book of Revelation for your devotions and you read about uh, locusts that sound like uh, thunder and then you open the newspaper and you see the, the, uh, the military has uh, done some kind of attack with Apache helicopters and you say, see there, it's coming true right now. In other words, the historicist is also called sort of newspaper theology. That, that you think everything that you see is, is being fulfilled, right, as it's, as it's going on. Probably not the case. And finally, you have the idealist. And the idealist is sort of the position that says, you know, I'm not sure if it's past tense or if it's future tense or it's happening right now, but definitely there are things we can learn here about the gospel. There are things here we can learn that we can apply spiritually. And we've taken some level, some, a little bit of all of these, some more than other, but the, really the approach that I think is more important is what I've called the sort of gospel approach or a gospel-centered approach. In other words, the purpose of the book of Revelation isn't to teach us about past events and it's not necessarily to teach us about future events, but the purpose of the book of Revelation is to teach us about the person and work of Jesus. And I remember Eugene Peterson said in his book, Reverse Thunder, that really in the book of Revelation, there's no new information. It's only old information that is repackaged and given to us in a new way, a fresh way, so that it hopefully wakes us up 
to see. And I've said, we'll see today even. The better you know your Old Testament, the better you're going to understand the book of Revelation. So with all of that said, um, why don't we jump in? I have an outline for you this morning. Um, we have, in verses 1 through 6, we're going to see a hallelujah chorus. We're going to see, uh, secondly, a marriage, or if you're Princess Bride fans, right, a marriage. Um, and finally, we're going to see an invitation. So you're going to see a chorus, a marriage, and an invitation. So as we jump in, let's look at first, what does the word hallelujah mean? You see, when you're studying the book of Revelation, there's certain things that pop up that aren't anywhere else in the Bible. And the word hallelujah is somewhere else in the Bible. It's just nowhere else in the New Testament. This is the only place where it shows up. And it shows up four times right in a row. And so what does hallelujah mean? Hallelujah is basically a, a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew phrase and that basically hallelujah means you praise. It's an imperative. You need to do something. And then Yah is short for Yahweh, which means you praise God. That's all it means. But it's telling you to do something. It's not, it's not just an expression. It's, it's an imperative that says you praise God. So when you hear it four times, it's, it's saying you praise God, you praise God, you praise God. Or when you hear even the hallelujah chorus. It's not just beautiful, it's actually exhorting you towards some end. And you see it most of the time in the Psalms. There's a group of Psalms in Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 called the Hallel Psalms, or the You Praise Psalms. Also, the last five Psalms in the Bible are Psalms that are, that are sort of Hallel songs. They're constantly telling us, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And especially in the Hallel Psalms, these praises, this hallelujah, is linked to the Passover or the celebration of Israel's Passover feast where the lamb was slain and they partook of it and then God delivered them from Egypt. And if you remember in the book of Revelation, that theme comes up over and over and over. So now that you know what hallelujah means, who sings it? Basically three groups sing this hallelujah chorus or they make up the, the different parts of the hallelujah chorus. The first one is just this group called the multitude. Let me read to you verses 1 and 2. John says, After I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with their immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So the first group that sings is the multitude. Now, if you, if you just read this out of context and you hadn't been looking at the book of Revelation or you're not familiar with the Bible, it could almost sound pretty sick if you think about it. In other words, it's sort of like, praise the Lord, he killed everybody. Praise the Lord, he's wrought destruction on all of the earth. Or raised, he's, he's raised Babylon to the ground. Thank God. Is that what's happening here? The, the answer on one hand is yes, actually. On the other hand, when you look at this in context of the whole Bible, you know, always in the Bible, whenever you see people singing about judgment or talking about judgment, the flip side of judgment is always salvation, at least in the Bible. And in other words, when the enemies of Israel are, are, are judged by God and punished, well, even if it doesn't state it, what's unstated is that through that, Israel was delivered. And so as Babylon is punished, and remember we talked about the city of God versus the city of man. As Babylon is punished, Babylon is the one that persecuted the saints. Babylon is the one who, who crushed the saints and put herself against God. So in some sense, the saints are rejoicing that the, the people that were punishing them and persecuting them are now themselves being punished and persecuted. But even more than that, what they're praising God about is that God is a promise-keeping God. God. 
In other words, all the way back at the, at the Revelation chapter 6, the fifth seal, and that's where you have the saints underneath the altar, and they're saying, how long, O oh God, how long until, until you give us vengeance for those who have persecuted us? And God basically says it won't be long. Well, that has happened by now. Right now it's happening, and they're singing about it, that, that God has kept his promise to be just and holy and to punish all those who set themselves against them and all those who have set themselves against us, and they sing about it. The whole multitude of heaven. The second group is the the elders and 24 living creatures. And what they say is actually interesting. It says, once more they cried out, hallelujah, her smoke goes up to her forever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Now what's going on here? Did you notice what they said? It wasn't much actually. There's a sense in which the, the 24 elders and the living creatures, they show up in chapter 4, and they're the ones that lead all of the heavenly host in worship. And yet here, they're sort of, you know, if I can quote uh, contemporary news, they're sort of leading from behind. The whole multitude has burst out in song about what God has done and what the 24 elders and the living creatures come behind and say for their part of the song is just this, Amen. Hallelujah. What does amen mean? Amen simply means that's true. Or as my kids would say, true that, right? I mean, it's either way, what they're saying is we agree with everything that they just said. Hallelujah. So the elders, the, the multitude sings about God's salvation and his judgment. The elders say amen to that. And then one other group is exhorted to sing. And let's notice who they are. Verses four, or 5 and 6. It says, um, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, and you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And the third group that is exhorted to sing are saints on earth right now. In other words, all of heaven sings, the 24 elders and living creatures sing, and then from heaven the voice comes and says, now all of you on earth sing, because what God has done has accomplished his salvation on your behalf. And did you notice the last part? It said, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. And that is theological language for saying there is nothing that is outside of his control and nothing that he won't do to make sure that his promises toward you are kept until all the saints on earth are, are exhorted to sing. And we miss that sometimes. We miss that sometimes. We tend to think, well, we're just in our little Presbyterian church and we sing. But on any Sunday morning, on any given Sunday morning, every church, whether it's Baptist or Presbyterian or Episcopal or Catholic, even any church, they're all singing to God. All of the saints are exhorted to sing. And in other words, some, right now when we sing, we sing as, a, as our little church. On the other hand, someday we will sing with everyone who has trusted Jesus. And we will sing of the salvation of God. And we're exhorted to sing now like we'll be singing then. And so when you, you sing, do you sing like that? Do you sing as if God has done everything to save you from your sins and that everyone in the whole world is listening and everyone in the world is participating in that? That's the chorus we sing with the angels, with the four living creatures, with the 24 elders, with the multitudes that have gone before us. And as a side note, look at verse 7 as we move toward... Uh, the rest of the text. Verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. 
I wanted to take just a second to point out to you this phrase, let us rejoice and exult. In the Greek, it could also be translated, let us rejoice and be glad. And the reason I think it's important to have here, as we move into this whole idea of the marriage feast of the Lamb, is to, to realize that this phrase only occurs one other place in the New Testament. And the place it occurs in the New Testament is Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. I'll read that to you. Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You recognize that if you're a Christian? It comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, that's right, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the last beatitude says, Blessed are you when they persecute you. And then, then he says this, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And I think whether consciously or unconscious of the way John has received this vision, it's just too clear of a connection not to link them together. Jesus told people in the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice when you are persecuted. And then in chapter 6, they are persecuted and pray, when are you going to vindicate us? And now at the marriage feast of the Lamb, you hear again that refrain, let us rejoice and be glad. He said to rejoice when we are persecuted because they persecuted those before us. We were persecuted, the saints will say. And now we are enjoying the feast that Jesus promised all the way back at the Sermon on the Mount. And if you keep going and you look at the marriage, in order to understand what's going on with this marriage feast of the Lamb, you really have to look at the Old Testament. In fact, you, gotta, you, have, to, you have to dig a little bit, but not much. Let me read to you a few passages from the Old Testament, from Isaiah, First Isaiah chapter 54. God says to Israel, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. So when you begin to read the Old Testament prophets, one of the primary metaphors they use to, to identify Israel's relationship with God or saints' relationship with God is that of marriage. It's that of marriage. And that's going to become really important in a minute as I explain that to you. Let me read to you Isaiah 61 first. Just another example. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice in the Lord my soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself out like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So when God wants to communicate to us and to Israel how much he cares about us, what the relationship is like, he uses the metaphor of marriage. What's even more interesting, there are two implications of this as we move forward to, to this thing called the marriage feast of the Lamb. And I want to read to you first Ezekiel chapter 16, and then I'll point those out to you. Notice what God says to Israel in Ezekiel 16. He says, When I passed you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists 
and a chain on your neck, and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Now here's what's so important about that passage and as it relates to marriage. First of all, when you look at Ezekiel, and you look at a lot of these passages, it teaches us an extreme or a very, a very thick line between what we call the gospel and what we call the law. And what is the line? What's the difference between the gospel and the law? What God promises he will do and what the law says. And it's just this. In the gospel, God is constantly saying, I will. I will, I will, I will. Did you notice when I was reading through Ezekiel what he said to Israel about his marriage to her? He says, I made a vow to you. I entered into a covenant with you. I bathed you. I clothed you. I wrapped you. I adorned you. I put a ring in your, your nose. I bestowed on you everything you needed. So when you're talking about the gospel, it's all about what God will do for you. And he says, I will, I will, I will, I will. When you talk about the law, the law, instead of saying, I will, I will, I will, says, you shall, you shall, you shall. Right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Or you shall, you shall, you shall. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, which is easier to pull off? Gospel or law? Well, one, you can't pull off because it's grace. God simply says, here it is, I give you. I will, I will, I will. You're simple and separated from God, but I will forgive you. I will give my son's life for you. I will do everything it takes to finish the job. I will, I will, I will. Or would you rather stand in front of God with your own, your own goodness, your own low standard of morality and say, I shall, I shall, I shall. I shall always be good. I shall always do the right thing. I shall always make sure that, that everything I do is perfect and complete. I shall, I shall. The weight of that is unbearable. So the first thing you see is the, this difference between the law and the gospel. The gospel says I will. The law says you shall. The second thing you see from Ezekiel is a different perspective on sin. And it's sort of, a, I was, my eyes were opened. I read, was reading a, a man named Daryl Johnson this week. And what comes right after all that good stuff I just read, where it's, God says, um, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Then the very next verse says, But, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, and your beauty became his. And what we see there is that sin is profoundly relational. In other words, when you think of sin, if you're a Christian and you've been in church your whole life and you, and you ask someone, what is sin? They would probably say what? Breaking rules. Maybe if they've been catechized, they'd say, you know, it's any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. It's almost a bit mathematical. Or if you're not a Christian, I said, what, if I asked you, what is sin? And you'd say, I don't know, it's probably doing bad things. All those things are true. But what we tend to miss when we, when we skip over these marriage metaphors is that at the end of the day, sin is profoundly relational. In other words, that every sin that we commit, everything we do is an act of adultery. Everything we do is cheating on our true lover if God, in fact, is our true lover. If Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride, then everything we do, sin is a bit more than just math. 
And it's more than just accounting. And it's more than just, well, I did more bad things than I did good things. What it has to do with is whether or not you're truly in relationship with this one called Jesus. And are you? And does that affect the way you live your life? Do you look at your sin and the things that you do as being this profoundly relational thing, or do you just look at it as math? I did a lot of bad stuff yesterday, I'll do a lot of good stuff today. What we learn from the Old Testament is that sin is bigger than we could have imagined. It's bigger because of the law, but it's also bigger because of our relationship. But we also learn about grace, that God is willing to cover that sin. God is willing to cover that shame, and he does it in the person and work of Jesus. And that's when we go to the New Testament, where we'll head next. And notice, let me read to you. 19 verses 7 and 8. It says this, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so in order to understand why, why, is, why does all of the book of Revelation in some sense culminate in marriage, or this thing called a marriage feast. In order to understand that, you've got to understand marriage from an ancient Near Eastern perspective. And there's a pretty elaborate process in the ancient Near East. And the process started with betrothal, and then went on to preparation, and after preparation, it moved on to a feast. So what would, what would the betrothal look like in the ancient Near East? Basically just this, is if a man wanted to get married, he would visit the father of some woman, and he would negotiate a bride price. In other words, he would have to pay something in order for, to, for the privilege of marrying her. And if the father accepted, they would, the, the groom and the bride, although they wouldn't come together, but they would be considered at that point as, as if they were married, even though the wedding hadn't taken place yet. That's why when you look at the story of Joseph and Mary, even though they hadn't, had never known each other, he sought to put her away quietly. He would have had to divorce her because betrothal was binding. And after this bride price was agreed to, and after they did that, they would take a cup of wine, and they would hold it up and say, this cup is the new covenant, and they would drink it. My kids told me that the nativity story, all this is played out in that story, the movie, the nativity story, it's actually pretty accurate. So what would happen after, after they made this covenant, a new covenant that has been made? Well, then the, the groom would say, I'm leaving now to go and prepare a place for you. And as I'm going to prepare a place for you, you need to prepare yourself for when I return. And now we're in the preparation phase. And the bride would say, when are you going to return? And he would say, it's a surprise. In other words, think about it. We tend to, when we hear phrases like Jesus saying, I'll come back like a thief in the night, it tends to be scary, right? I mean, I was like, ooh. Imagine if he was saying that in the context of lovers. When are you coming? When are you coming to me? I'm not going to tell you, but it'll be like a thief in the night. Better be ready. Come on, give me something. December. And so he would leave and go to his father's house and prepare a place for him and his bride. And then as December approached, the bride and her maids would start to get ready. Because he might come December 1st or he might come December 31st, but sometime in there he's going to come. So every single day, every single night, they would have to be ready and prepared. And at some point he would come, and it usually would be around midnight. 
and he would come and say, the bride is here, and everyone would rejoice, and all the lights would go on, and they would come out into the streets, and the party would begin. And the party would begin there, but there would be a process or a procession back to his father's house. In other words, he would take them back home, and then they would have a feast that lasted at least a week, but sometimes two weeks. That sound familiar to you? That's the whole New Testament. That's the, all the Gospels, what Jesus is teaching them throughout. Listen to what he says to his disciples in John chapter 14. Remember, they're worried because he's, he's starting to talk like crazy talk. You know, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to leave, and all these things. And he says to them in verse 1 of chapter 14, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. If my father's, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. When Jesus is speaking there, he's speaking as a bridegroom. The bride is saying, don't leave us. I don't even know what's going on yet. Where are you going? And he said, what I told you, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you if that wasn't the truth. And he says, as soon as I'm ready, I will come back for you and I will bring you back to myself because where I am, there will you be also. Isn't that every bride's dream? Like waiting for that wedding day to happen and it finally does. And so it does. And then after all of that happens, when the feast comes, that's where we've arrived in the book of Revelation. That the wedding feast has happened. That the party is beginning even now, it says in chapter 19. So where does that bring us? I mean, so, so you, on one hand, you, you've got the saints singing, and then you have this marriage, and this marriage feast, and the, the bride coming back, where Jesus, through the whole New Testament, remember, he basically comes, he pays a bride price, he negotiates with the Father, what's it going to cost to have these people? And we know that's the price of his blood, and when, as we take communion, what do we say? This cup is the new covenant, what? In my blood. And then he goes to prepare a place and he says, I'll come back to receive you. And he does. And that leads us from that to the very next part, which is an invitation to this very same wedding. Notice in verse 9 and 10, it says, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm your fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so the question is, what's, what does this mean? Right? On one hand, people are said to be the bride in verses uh, 7 and 8, and here they're invited to the wedding. And the answer is, it makes it a little more clear if instead of the word invited, you use the word called. Because it's not just invited. You're not blessed just because you, you're invited to a wedding. You're, invited, you're, you're blessed if you're invited to a wedding and you RSVP in the positive and then you actually attend the wedding and the feast. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Blessed are all those who are invited or who are called to the feast of the Lamb. And the question is, why would you not attend? Why would you fail to RSVP that? There's really only two reasons. One is you don't believe it and you don't think you need Jesus. Or the other is you think you're not good enough. In other words, people think, why would I be able to want to go there? I mean, it's a big wedding, you know, I don't have anything to wear, you know. Maybe I'm not good enough, maybe I don't know. And as I was thinking about this, I came across this passage from a book by Johnny Erickson Tata. 
as she thought about her own wedding. If you're not familiar with Johnny Erickson uh, Tata, she is a quadriplegic. She's paralyzed from the neck down. She's a great theologian. She's a great uh, writer and speaker. And as I read this, I couldn't help but thinking of what it must be like to be sitting at the wedding feast of the Lamb. She's talking about her own wedding. Actually, she's talking about coming down the aisle. She says, I felt awkward as my girlfriend strained to shift my paralyzed body into a cumbersome wedding gown. No amount of corseting and binding my body gave me the perfect shape. The dress just didn't fit well. Then as I was wheeling into the church, I glanced down and noticed that I'd accidentally run over the hem of my dress, leaving a greasy tire mark. My paralyzed hands couldn't hold the bouquet of daisies that lay off center on my lap and that my chair, though decorated for the wedding, was still big, clunky gray machine with belts, gears, and ball bearings. I certainly didn't feel like the picture-perfect bride in this bridal magazine. I inched my chair closer to the last pew to catch a glimpse of Ken in front, and there he was, standing tall and stately in his formal attire. I saw him looking for me, craning his neck to look up the aisle. My face flushed, and I suddenly couldn't wait to be with him. I'd seen my beloved. The love in Ken's face had washed away all my feelings of unworthiness. I was his pure and perfect bride. You see, when you think of this whole idea of the wedding feast of the Lamb, and you look at what it says in verse uh, 8, it says, And the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. If you are responsible for providing those righteous deeds, you should fear that day. But did you notice what it says? It didn't say the good works of the saints. In other words, when the bride leaves, Jesus, the bridegroom leaves, he says, when I come back, here's what I want you to be wearing. He provides the very outfit that is expected to be worn. If you look at Matthew chapter 22, in Matthew chapter 22 is the wedding, this parable of the wedding feast. And the only person who gets kicked out gets kicked out because he doesn't have the right clothes on. And the question is, is are you wearing the right clothes? Are you there by grace because Jesus has given you the garments that you need to wear? That the fine acts are just acts that grow out of your knowing him. You know, as I was thinking through this passage, I'll close with this, the, um, the hymn, How Sweet and Awful, or How Sweet and Awesome, is the place. Because it, it's a, basically a hymn where Isaac Watts is contemplating, why am I here? Why am I at the wedding feast of the Lamb? You know, why, why am I here when so many choose to starve? And this verse stuck out to me. It says, It was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. In other words, the, the reason if you're at the table, it's because you have been called by Jesus. And if you are here and you're not at the table, do you hear Jesus calling now? Will you come to his table? Will you, will, you, will you join him at this feast? In a moment, you're going to physically have the ability to do that. But I'm asking you now, especially if you don't know Christ, would you trust him? Would you make him your husband today? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we um, consider this, this marriage feast, there's so much more that could be said. But I pray that if nothing else, you would communicate deep in our hearts, A, how much you, you love us and how much you want us to be there, how you've done all the work to get us there. And Father, I pray that we, in fact, would be there, that we would attend and we would rejoice in that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.